and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here and joining us in studio now, former Governor Jim Douglas. Good morning, Governor Douglas. Top of the AM to you fellas. Great to be here. Yeah. So I was reading an article in the last day or so in the Wall Street Journal. Picture of you in the article, and it's titled, what is it titled? Middlebury Scapegoat for Eugenics. And former Governor Douglas is sort of, uh, you know, pictured as the Cape Crusader here, fighting voting, fighting for, woke politics. For truth, justice, and the American way. There you go. <laughs> so what's the latest? We've talked about this, and maybe just for, I think, a lot of, probably the vast majority of our listeners know about this, but give us a quick rundown for those who might not. Well, in, uh, on uh, September 27th, 2021, the date that will live in infamy, um, Middlebury College re- removed the name Mead Memorial Chapel from uh, the um, highest building on campus, uh, the House of Worship that was generously donated by an alumnus and uh, trustee, uh, former Governor John Mead in 1914. And the basis for that decision was that he gave a speech in 1912, his farewell address as governor, um, in which he suggested uh, a limitation on the issuance of marriage licenses to, quote, defectives, unquote, and uh, that was uh, broadly in the category of eugenics, and so that um, the college felt obliged to uh, erase that blot from its uh, collegiate history. <clears throat> well, what's interesting is that Governor Mead gave one speech in 1912. Uh, I haven't found any evidence of anything else. Uh, he made a recommendation that was never enacted into law. Um, now, there were some uh, sterilization laws passed after he was dead in the 1930s, uh, but nothing as a result of his uh, of his recommendation. Meanwhile, Middlebury College was, as as our state lawyer uh, characterized it, a quote eugenics factory unquote uh, because from ni- from 1895 to 1945, for a half century, Middlebury was teaching eugenics. And in 1908, <laughs> interestingly, way past uh, Governor Meade's time. Well, exactly. Uh, and and as we point out in our filing with the court, uh, for at least three years. After the world knew about the atrocities of the Nazis, Middlebury just kept teaching eugenics. And uh, and, <laughs> and a required course. 1908, it was required for all seniors. Um, uh, you couldn't graduate from Middlebury College unless you took a course uh, that would teach you about, quote, defectives and degenerates, unquote, uh, which are the exact labels for which they punished Governor Mead. So, I mean, this is just hypocrisy of the highest order. And as um, uh, the article points out, uh, they threw this guy under the bus um, to cover up uh, the college's own history. And this was at a time when, and even though I, we look at it now and say, boy, this was really a bad idea, obviously. Yeah. But this was at a time when lots of people believed in this. It's it's like <laughs> the, what's the phrase that they use now? Uh, what was mainstream, certainly. Uh, well, that people... Who are are talking about people in the past? Oh, who, presentism. Presentism. That's there you right. go. That's presentism. the one I was looking for. Them. Yeah. For, uh, but but a lot of people believed in this back then, including I think they say in the article Teddy Roosevelt. 
Yeah, um, Helen Keller, uh, W.E.B. Dubois, the famous uh, black author, uh, talked about purifying the black race. Uh, so it was a, a very common uh, view. Uh, a Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., uh, talked about it in a decision uh, in a favorable way. So it was very, uh, very common point of view. And and um, uh, he, uh, you know, Governor Meade was was actually quite mild in his. Uh, discussion of it compared to a lot of other people. Yeah, it wasn't like the centerpiece of his speech. No, yeah. it was one, one line. I, and here's a guy who was quite progressive in many respects. He, he talked about uh, um, direct primaries, about more campaign finance disclosure, about... Uh, women's being, suffrage at the time? Yes, women's suffrage, tougher child labor laws. He even talked about clean energy, more hydropower. He wanted, his time. To, wanted to get away from fossil fuels. Who would have thunk oh my God. years ago? So... I mean, but he had this uh, one proposal. I remember he was a physician, so he had a little background in stuff like that. Um, but it's just uh, it's the hypocrisy, I think, that is most offensive. Uh, you know, the college is really covering up its own half-century history about teaching this stuff. Have you heard, I mean, I know you're in court, and so maybe we won't hear anything from them until they're in court, but... Mm-hmm. Have you heard anything as to what they're... Def- I-, I can't even figure out how you make a defense of this from Middlebury College. To have this history that they had, which went way past Governor Meade, it's like, how do you, with a straight face, defend that when... Should we take Middlebury out of any reference to anything uh, off every single building and every utterance that the Middlebury College talks about? <laughs> I-, I really... I- honest to God... Have they? Have you heard any defense that they've given for that? No, and, and uh, your suggestion is the one the uh, Boston Globe columnist made that the more yeah. offensive name is Middlebury, not Mead. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. I, I honestly cannot understand or even figure out what their defense could be. And by the way, we're talking to Governor Douglas. If you want to ask him a question, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. There was a... Uh, report that uh, Professor Dan Silva uh, of our faculty did uh, just three years ago, shortly after the episode, and uh, he talked about the history of eugenics in the early 20th century, and he has a great quote in his report. He says, It is therefore not a stretch to consider that eugenicists and eugenics sympathizers were, to some degree, trained at Middlebury College. (laughs) (laughs) But they they think they're going to make everything right by removing the name Mead from the chapel. And of course, they. He also talked about the fact that when when this when it was named Mead Chapel, what that was supposed to be. I mean, well, well, that's another irony, Kurt. Uh, um, uh, The college put out a press release on that fateful day and said the chapel was named in memory of Governor and Mrs. Mead. Well. Uh, no, uh, and, and I have a lot of fun with my students. Uh, I'll ask, well, why do you think Governor Mead chose the name Mead Memorial Chapel while he was still alive? Well, because it wasn't named for himself. He named it for his ancestors, for earlier generations, the first settlers right. of the Outer Valley. And and so I've asked some people at the college, so what do you have against uh, Roswell Mead and uh, Colonel James Mead and all those guys. <laughs> well, by the way, and we've got a phone call coming in, but what do students say? when? You, what, what's their reaction been to this? Um, I, mm, well, uh, they're a different generation, Kurt, and uh, some of them think uh, erasing any stain, however oh, minimal, no, is maybe uh, not a bad idea. But I've been very pleased at the response of faculty who uh, are quite unhappy at the lack of transparency regardless of the ultimate outcome. Yeah, that's that's what I find interesting. It does concern me though that that the, the younger generation is like, mm. well, no, it's got to go. You know, <laughs> that, get rid that's of very anything. Concerning. 
Yeah. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Governor, thank you for really going after this hypocrisy. These are clearly some bad people, and we have a lot of them in our state, unfortunately, many of them residing under the Golden Dome. But can you please, for everybody's sake, have the courage to name two or three of these people that are behind this hideous hypocrisy? Thank you. Well, I don't want to personalize it. Um, I've often said that there's a it's really an institutional failure. Uh, a lot of the online comments um, um, in response to the re- most recent Wall Street Journal piece uh, attack the college president directly and personally, but that's not the point. Um, the, the Board of Trustees made the decision, right. um, and um, I, I, if the case goes forward, as I hope it will, we'll want to depose uh, the trustees and, and uh, senior leaders to get their uh, uh, perspective on this. So I, I don't think it's anybody in particular. It's it's the the leadership collectively. And where where do we stand with the court case? What's the timeline? Where's what's it looking like? We had oral arguments a week and a half ago, um, where the lawyers uh, did a lot of you know lawyerly stuff uh, pr- presentations. Um, um, you know, to the layperson, not a very exciting uh, uh, hour. But uh, here, here's the highlight from my perspective. Um, at one point, the college's lawyer said, "Well, you know, uh, Your Honor, um, a lot of my legal practice uh, deals with." planning estates and helping people with their charitable deductions and minimize their taxes and all that. And obviously that's what motivated Governor Meade. Well, my lawyer was poised uh, to pounce and say, it's interesting that defense counsel uh, claims to be an expert in this area and is apparently unaware that there was no charitable deduction in 1914. <laughs> <laughs> bada bing, bada boom, oh. A- <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Nailed. <laughs> Good morning. You're live. Oh. 888-414-0303. That's the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline. You want to speak with Governor Douglas? Give us a call. And give us a call back if we missed your call. Uh, that, 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 I mean, it's just they just keep stepping in it, to be honest with you. Uh, well, there's a famous quote, too, from a former college president, uh, Paul Moody, in the 30s. Uh, and uh, he was asked by uh, uh, Dr. Perkins, who was the guy at UVM who was leading all the eugenics stuff back then, and um, and uh, uh, Perkins asked uh, President Moody, well, have you had any uh, French-Canadian students at uh, Middlebury College uh, who've uh, um, done anything useful or made a name for themselves? And President Moody said, no. And then he thought about it more, and, and uh, he said, I can't think of one Canadian who has risen to a place of responsibility. In fact, President Moody said, if the whole French-Canadian population were wiped out of Middlebury, no one would notice. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> okay. Oh, the the hypocrisy here is just it's unreal. A, oh, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hi. Uh, is this the gov- uh, the governor's line? Yeah. Well, well you're, you're live you're, on the air. Well, you're talking to everybody. You're on the morning drive with Governor Jim Douglas. <laughs> yep. All right. When I when I first read about this. I heard, I read that uh, they got a lot of the material from their own archives that they used to condemn Governor Meade. Now, how would they have not have known about their own 50-year involvement in this uh, eugenics? Well, I assume that they did know, and that's what's uh, so disturbing about this, the hypocrisy and the cover-up. Um, the the uh, college uh, official said to me, well, this is a very thoughtful and thorough process, um, but they won't release the report from their working group. Uh, I asked the uh, college's lawyer for a copy of it, and 
And I was told, uh, well, under our records retention policy, it's uh, confidential for, are you ready, 75 years. <laughs> oh, we'll be able to take a look at it in yeah. 75 years from now when, we, uh, when we're approaching the year 2100. Well, I put it on my calendar just to touch just just back at the time. But that's, uh, that's uh, the caller's point that, I mean, how could they not? I mean, the catalogs are there, the information that we've talked about this morning. So um, that's why... I believe, the descendants believe, our lawyer believes that this is a huge cover-up. And, and they made this guy a scapegoat to try to uh, distract us all from uh, the college's own history. So total, along with hypocrisy, total lack of transparency. Yeah, and that's what I hear a lot about from faculty who say, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with the decision or not, but, um, but this is an academic institution. This is where we explore the truth and uh, seek knowledge and, and discuss ideas and debate them. And for this to happen behind closed doors, uh, uh, I often equate it or contrast it with uh, the college's decision to uh, divest its portfolio of fossil fuels. That debate went on for like a decade, I think. I know. Well, because of... they were still burning coal. Well, okay. it wasn't until they figured out how to, how to heat the campus without coal that they they, they, they ended the debate. I what mean, a cynic, Anthony. I'm sorry. It's just, let's be honest about it. We're talking to Governor Jim Douglas. If you have a question for him, give us a call. The McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. Uh, and we're talking, of course, about the... Uh, the controversy that the governor stirred up <laughs> uh, against his, well, he's, you're employed by Middlebury College. Yeah, yeah, well, I would say they stirred it up. No, you're yeah. right. You're right. I'm just being, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, but the governor is taking it to them and as he, as he should. And there's a lot of publicity about it. It's been in the Boston Globe. It's been in the Wall Street Journal. The governor's been on Howie Carr show, uh, probably other places as well. Morning Drive, most importantly, though. That's right. Um, but it's exposing, I think that you're shining a light on something that should have a light shined on it, which is the, the hypocrisy um, of this, really of the whole movement. Because whenever you head down this path on anything like this, you you are now opening yourself up to, as Middlebury College did, their own history, their own past. Well, and you mentioned earlier, Kurt, uh, the, the concept of presentism. And uh, it's just not fair to hold someone in another era to the standards of today. And uh, there was a report a few years ago uh, at Princeton where they were, they finally removed Woodrow Wilson's name from a couple of things. Mm. But several years prior to that, they decided not to. And, and they uh, engaged a panel of experts, including a professor from Stanford, uh, David Kennedy, uh, who said, you know, uh, in a world of the fallen, uh, shouldn't we uh, rather, shouldn't we celebrate uh, people who tried to do their best and and did some good rather than focus on the one bad thing that they did? Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, Governor Douglas. Morning. I'm, my question is: Do you think that by erasing a name, they're also trying to erase the fact that Middlebury College? had a Christian chapel there. Do you think it's do you think it's associated with Christianity? And I'm gonna hang up and listen to your answer. Thank you. Good question. Well it really is. Uh, it, ra- it raises another important element of this. Uh, uh, Governor Mead was a uh, uh, a, a religious man. Um, his ancestors uh, not only uh, settled the Otter Valley, uh, the first European settlers there, but they brought Christianity to the area. They befriended the natives and uh, read the Bible to them. And and there is a um, uh, one uh, a family Bible that is 
entombed in the cornerstone of Meade Memorial Chapel. Uh, so the family's DNA is actually in the structure, too. And you're right, uh, caller, that um, uh, the old chapel um, um, was was uh, was outgrown by the college. There wasn't enough room for the entire student body to gather in there, and so he wanted a much larger house of worship. And there is, of course, a biblical quote on the outside, and, and uh, that's exactly what he had in mind. Uh, as, you know, uh, I was when I was a student a half century ago. We still had uh, weekly chapel services at Middlebury. Not long before I was a student, there were daily chapel services. So we've certainly drifted away from that into a more secular era. And uh, you know, I don't want to impugn uh, um, or suggest motives beyond uh, what we've uh, heard, but who knows? Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, Governor. I don't know how I feel about Middlebury's decision, but it seems to me it's a private institution. They can probably do what they want. But I want to ask you about Donald Trump, and I know you haven't been a real champion of his, but many in your party are. And I get that they can look past his indictments, his impeachments, but how can they look past his um, being found liable for rape? I mean, isn't that a bridge too far for your party? Well, first of all, let me pick up on your first point. Uh, it is a private institution, but uh, this was a breach of contract. Uh, Governor Meade uh, gave the chapel, and, and part of uh, his gift uh, included the designation of the name. That was a condition of the gift, and so that's really the crux of the, the legal six, case. If you break uh, it down to the simple legal fact, yeah, it's yeah, a breach I mean, of contract. Public or private, uh, there was a deal. It was accepted on that basis to use the name, and a uh, century later the college breached that provision in the contract. So that's uh, that's the essence of the suit. On Trump, um, you know, the voters will decide. Uh, I'm not a real fan. Um, um, uh, my, um, Ari Fleischer was in Vermont a few years ago and, and made a point that uh, um, next year Donald Trump will be as old as Joe Biden was when he was first elected. So uh, even uh, all the other issues aside, um, we have this gerontocracy. I mean, look yeah. at a couple of prominent U.S. senators who are uh, not doing so well right <laughs> not now, so right? Well, no. And so I think uh, that maybe is something in the minds of people too. But you know, um, I think the bar has been lowered. I think Bill Clinton lowered the bar, to be honest, in terms of personal conduct. And and uh, when all is said and done, the American people will will decide. Do you think, though, that it appears right now, if the polls are right, that Republican voters will be making a mistake? If if the current trajectory follows through, that well, they'll be making a mistake in nominating Donald Trump again. I don't know how he expands his base. Um, um, you know, to get those soccer moms back uh, who, who went with him in 2016, the suburban uh, voters, uh, the swing voters. Did on your way in? Did you hear the caller who said Donald? If Donald Trump is nominated, the the Republicans and and that's a caller who votes for Republicans. I know sometimes um, saying that there is no chance to win. Yeah, um, you know, I don't want to make predictions um, <laughs> because they're usually wrong. <clears throat> I, I I think someone else suggested that there is a scenario under which Trump could win. I mean, if if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee and and looks really frail and out of it, uh, you know, who knows? That was me. Oh, it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm I just camp. think that when you speak in certainties, like yeah. no, this cannot happen right, under right. any circumstances. Uh, you can a lot of times be proven wrong. That's right. All right, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Seth. I was calling uh, to hopefully catch the governor. Sure. Uh, you're on with the governor. You're on the air. Wonderful. 
Um, hope interesting to hear the the number seventy five years as the holding period of that information, kind of like the the work they did on the COVID vaccines. But I didn't know how history would look back on uh, the EB five program and have all the papers been released on that situation. I honestly don't know. I remember uh, some media went to court and got a lot of them, right, uh, some years ago. Uh, there are certainly quite a few of them. Um, uh, public records are are a lot more accessible than private records. I mean, a private institution presumably can keep its records secret if it wants to. Um, government records are different. Um, sometimes if they're related to uh, litigation, there's a lawyer-client privilege where some records may be retained, um, um, uh, may be uh, uh, held confidentially, but most of them should be available for public inspection. So, I, But I honestly don't know the current status of that. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hi, good morning. Um, so glad you're having him on today. This is exciting. So I'm actually a Southerner, born and bred Alabamian, but I'm married to a Yankee. I've uh, I've lived in Maine. I've lived in New York. And I've been following this case. And something that's interesting to me is that, you know, when I've lived around all you Yankees, you're all very proud of the Union victory. And so, and, and it resulted in the, you know, the cessation of slavery in the United States. And I recognize all of that as a Southerner. And Governor Meade fought in the Civil War, did he not? And why are we? Why, I guess. I guess my question is, what is? What's going on where the school can only see this one sentence in a speech, but refuses to look at all of the amazing things he accomplished that actually set so many people free? I mean, he was a part of that. Can you talk about that? Well, thank you. It was a very good point. Uh, he and a bunch of classmates uh, interrupted their studies at Middlebury during the Civil War to, to enlist. Um, I, uh, it's hard to imagine that degree of, uh, of commitment. Um, but um, but you know, my dad um, um, en- enlisted before he graduated from high school, though they wouldn't take him into the Navy until he actually had graduated. Um, but uh, we probably don't understand the uh, uh, the strong commitment to serve one's country uh, when when there's a real threat to the uh, to the future of the world uh, and and Governor Meade and his uh, his classmates felt that um, so a bunch of them uh, enlisted uh, they came back and, and finished their studies of course afterward after about a year of service uh, he was at Gettysburg he wasn't at the front line uh, but um, but uh, he, he he did whatever his country asked so um, point well taken uh, he loved this country he loved the state. He loved uh, his community of Rutland, where he was the first mayor after the city was incorporated in the 1890s. And he loved his alma mater, and that's why he gave so generously to it. Well, let's go back, uh, speaking of Rutland, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Speaking of Rutland, my almost 84 years curiosity never ends. I never gave much thought about this Mead situation, but there is a huge building, impressive building in downtown Rutland. It's called the Mead Building. And then in Santa Rutland, where I lived majority of my young adult life, um, there's a falls that I always refer to as Santa Rutland Falls. And now I re- uh, understand it's called the Mead Falls. And then I heard uh, Governor Douglas talking on another program there earlier, and he had said that um, the Mead family had started the quarries in West Rutland. 
So now I realize that obviously those falls in Santa Rutland are named after the Mead family. Is that correct? It is. Uh, they're called Meads Falls. That's the the area um, we believe where his ancestor, Colonel James Mead, and and uh, his immediate descendants lived and and settled when they first came uh, uh, to the uh, Otter Valley. Uh, and that there's a famous portrait of Meads Falls that hangs in the White House. Believe it or not. Um, oh. So it's quite uh, it's quite famous. And you're right about the building too. Um, uh, Governor Meade was a physician. I, I became a doctor, went to co- what's now Columbia Medical College after uh, Middlebury, practiced medicine for mm, probably up to 20 years in New York and Rutland, but uh, realized that that wasn't the best way to become prosperous. <laughs> so oh. he, he began to amass a lot of real estate, and uh, and he began several businesses, uh, um, uh, including uh, what's now uh uh, well, what became uh, the Howe Scale Howe Company? Howe Scale, yeah, and uh, and he had uh, a John A. Mead Manufacturing Company in New York City. Um, but but one of his early uh, uh, real estate uh, acquisitions was, as you suggest, what's now known as the Mead Building in downtown Rutland. Well, I just want to say this: we got to go to the break. Rutland okay. needs to Thank change you the so name. Much. So fascinating! I love hearing all this. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks Thank you. For calling Rutland this needs to change the name of that building. Uh, I don't think that's happening. Not in Rutland. They're not going to mess with What's this. What's wrong with Rutland that they're allowing this travesty? I had, to I had no idea that that uh, he, he he ostensibly his family founded Rutland. Yeah, uh, I had to say he was it's, the first mayor in the 1890s uh, yeah. after incorporation. We'll talk more about this when we come back from the break. But I right. tell you what, when you head down this path, you it's it's a path that there's no end to. I think I think that's why it's resonating nationally is because you can take this and just spread it all throughout the country right now. All right, we're going to check in with Fox News. Amanda. With Kurt and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT. We are back, everybody, on the morning drive, continuing our discussion now with Governor Jim Douglas. And uh, we're talking, we're going to get into some other things, too. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about the Mead Chapel controversy. Uh, former governor is the... Uh, a woke crusader now he's being labeled around the country. Yeah. And uh but we are gonna go right back to the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline. Triple eight four one four oh three oh three. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Oh, gotta turn your radio down. Good morning. You're doing that now. Uh I wanna thank the governor for um you taking up this issue as I'm as I'm listening everything that's coming out. I, I I'm just I'm, I'm struggling to understand where all of this ends, this cancel culture. If, if one sentence, you damn someone who the governor has explained in a previous caller has pointed out, did such good uh, for the country, where, you know, where does this end? And I guess I'd like the, the governor's thoughts on that. This seems to be taking us down a very dark, very, um, very dangerous path. Well, I'm very concerned about it. Uh, thanks for, for the call. Um, I, I may have mentioned on the show before a book I read uh, last year by a fellow named Anthony Cronman, who was a former Yale Law School dean. And uh, he has an entire chapter in his book on uh, uh, on names and buildings and statutes and stuff. The, the title of the book is The Assault on American Excellence. And, and he said we really should think about uh, someone's dominant legacy and not pick out the worst thing that he or she ever did because – 
everybody's legacy is mixed. I mean, we can find something uh, bad about anybody, uh, especially now when the record is a lot more complete uh, than it used to be. Did but, you see that there was something uh, not too long ago, in the last year or so we heard about this, with Governor Phil Hoth? Oh, I didn't. Well, they had something where he was in some skit or something he was blackface or something like that yes i did and there was a group that wanted to start taking his name off him anything from that yeah Uh, the caller makes a great point yeah when you go down the woke path and the cancel culture path there's no end to it and do you think there's anything i I don't know if this is the case in middlebury college i'm not sure about that but there at least with some it's an attempt to tear down america well, you wonder. Uh, of course, I, I have all kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, he was a Republican, you know. I oh mean, boy! I mean, who well, knows? there you go. Who knows? Who right. knows? Well, uh, you know, a lot of kids in that, in that generation right now don't believe Lincoln was a Republican. <laughs> you tell them <laughs> what? Uh, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. You're on the Hello. air. You're on the air. I'm on the air. You are. Okay. Uh, I've been following this thing for um, actually a good number of months. Uh, um, I'm interested in Vermont history, and this uh, whole Mead thing is fascinating. Um, I think when the the, uh, the feathers hit the fan, so to speak, uh, in that September uh, massacre, the um, college said Mead didn't represent values uh, consistent with uh, Middlebury's values today. What's interesting about Meade is he was uh, orphaned at four months of age. His parents were subsistence farmers. Mother died four months after his birth. Father couldn't take care of him. Essentially was uh, tossed around the community in the Fairhaven area. Um, basically paid his whole way through college. Uh, me- um, medical school and so forth, worked in the quarries. I think he dropped out of medical school because he was short of funds, worked in the quarries in West Rutland, etc. This guy was an amazing individual, uh, did more uh, than a hundred men went doing a typical lifetime. And for him to say, uh, or for Middlebury to say he didn't represent uh, decent values is just uh, absurd. Uh, well, they didn't say decent values. They said their values. <laughs> I mean, I know it's almost, you know, 100 years late. Well, it's 100, over 100 years since right. his speech. But basically, they've smeared him. They have. And the caller is exactly right about his early history. Uh, uh, his mother uh, died a few months after his uh, birth, um, most likely as a result of complications of uh, giving birth to Governor Meade. Um, and uh, all that's true. Uh, he, he was a brilliant guy uh, from the beginning he, he understood uh, how he could become prosperous he started acquiring real estate in the city uh, and uh, land uh, he, he owned a farm in west rutland and uh, was out there even as governor uh, uh, superintending the uh, harvest and and so forth so uh, he, he was just a, a very industrious uh, brilliant fellow and and a generous guy. I mean, he gave uh, beyond the chapel to Middlebury. Uh, he made donations to the biology department, which led to his uh, uh, career in medicine. He uh, gave money to the church in, in Rutland and to the Rutland Recreation Center. Uh, he gave a building down there for that, too. Uh, so uh, just an extremely accomplished fellow. You know, and uh, I, th- I think part of it, too, is the more accomplished you are, the more risks you take, the more risks you take, the more... You know, adverse things that you make happen, but the overall um, contribution is really what should be 
addressed, I think. The, yeah. the, uh, the dominant legacy, as Professor Cronman said, don't yeah. pick out the worst thing right. somebody ever did. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on The Morning Drive. Good morning. Uh, with all that's come out, uh, brought out by your lawsuit, why don't you think Middle Bay isn't going to try to cut its losses? I mean, this is this is tarnishing their own reputation, and why aren't they settling it and get it over with and restore the name? Don't know the answer to that. A lot of people have suggested it to me, and and as sort of a compromise approach, restore the name and then put up some kind of explanatory plaque on the building or information about this idea that the governor had that we don't like today uh, it, it of course should be accompanied by information about middlebury's own history and teaching and promoting eugenics uh, throughout that half century uh, but there certainly are uh, solutions out there if they're interested but you know before before going to court i had two meetings with officials at the college uh, with the administration and it, uh, it was just stonewall i mean they weren't interested in a serious discussion so um yeah i don't know and i'll just say um there's so many examples of this, and I am so glad that Governor Douglas is shining the spotlight on this one right here in Vermont at Middlebury College. But my own New York Yankees, I've said this on the show before, won't allow Kate Smith's version of the original version of God Bless America to be played at Yankee Stadium because they found, uh, of hundreds of records that she cut, they found one that had some lyrics in it they didn't like and somebody complained what? about. But guess what? You go down that path with the Yankees, don't ever mention Casey Stengel because he said racist stuff. Don't ever mention Billy Martin. You, you better start wiping a lot of the Yankee history out. Well, didn't, didn't they uh, ban Ronan uh, Tynan too? The saying that, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and Kate Smith didn't write that song, right? She just sang it. Yeah. I mean, good yeah. heavens! Now let's um, let's talk about another important, exciting event that's coming up. Because if you love history, and I do like history, and I, I would I I would love to. I wish I could be there like at the event that you're doing, but it's at 2 o'clock in the morning. Because I love just the idea. A hundred years ago, is it Wednesday night, early Thursday morning? Correct. A hundred years ago, this Thursday, our own Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, uh, the, the governor, uh, President Harding passed away, and they were trying to contact him. And it's a 100-year anniversary of it this Thursday at Plymouth Notch, and Governor Douglas will be there. Yes, it, he will. It's a, it's a great story. Uh, it's the only time that a uh, president was um, sworn in by his father, uh, Colonel John Coolidge, who was a notary public and justice of the peace. Uh, but you're exactly right, Kurt. Uh, <clears throat> on the evening of uh, August 2nd, 1923, uh, President Harding died out in San Francisco after a trip up to Alaska and Lots of theories on his demise, but uh, you know he had some health issues, and and uh, <clears throat> a telegram, a telegraph uh, came to uh, the nearest station, which was in Bridgewater, down on what's now Route Four, um, uh, with the news of the president's demise. And uh, Mrs. Nellie Perkins, who was the telegraph operator, um, uh, said, "Well, this is pretty serious." <laughs> so she dispatched her husband, uh, Winfred. Uh, to um, get in his old car and drive up to Plymouth Notch and bring the news to um, to the Coolidge homestead. The vice president Coolidge was was born there in Plymouth Notch, but uh, he was vacationing at his dad's home uh, at the time of this uh, event. Now, uh, Colonel Coolidge had no interest in a telephone and his uh, 
home. He, he did get one after his son became president and then had it ripped out after he left. <laughs> but, this but the, damn contraption. Well, I know there was a phone in the store across the street, but not at, in the middle of the night. I mean, uh, Florence Silly, the uh, proprietress, wasn't there, obviously, at that time, although they went and got her woke her up to come open the store so they could use the phone. But anyway, uh, um, the, the question was what to what to do and, and how to do it. So they got Miss Silly to open the store. They called the Attorney General of the United States uh, from the phone at the, uh, at the store across from the homestead and uh, got the text of the oath of office, and, and uh, uh, Colonel Coolidge administered it to his son at 2.47 a.m. on August 3rd. And then, of course, uh, the new president went back to bed. <laughs> and, and to your point, Kurt, we're going to reenact that. Now we do it every. I, I say we. I'm on the board of the Coolidge Foundation, and uh, and we reenact the Homestead inauguration every year, uh, generally on the Saturday nearest the anniversary at 2:47 p.m. And we're going to do it again uh, this year at 2:47 p.m. on several days. But we're also going to do it at the uh, exact hour because uh, a quarter century ago on the 75th anniversary. They did it in the middle of the night, and so we thought, well, this is the centennial. How can we not you gotta do, do it, it again, you right? Yeah. right? So, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, come on, guys. You, you don't have anything else on your schedule at that hour, do you? <laughs> uh, How about a live remote broadcast? I was, I, well, I was going to say, the. I don't, do they have uh, Do they have internet? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, they do. At least in the visitor center down the road. Down the road. I don't know about the homestead. I, I bet yeah. the homestead they probably don't. Well, maybe not. <laughs> Um, but I, I think it's—I do but, think it's fascinating. So, so tell us the. the well, so, who who are you? Well, I'm going to portray Colonel Coolidge. I've done that for the last few years, and um, and uh, uh, the president's great grandson will portray his ancestor. Oh, oh, wow! Yeah, and his great granddaughter will portray uh, Grace Coolidge, the president's wife. So that's really fun. And uh, there's a few other parts. Um, uh, Congressman Porter Dale was there, so someone will take his role. Someone will take Mr. Perkins's role, the fellow who came up and banged yeah, on the door. Right. Uh, there was a reporter, one reporter there, a young fellow, 22 years old, named Joe Fountain from the Springfield Reporter. Wow. Uh, and uh, there, uh, the president's chauffeur was there, um, and um, and one other. Person, but but so the person portraying Coolidge is actually the great grandson. Correct. Correct. So that's that is that is very cool. It's actually. nice. Yeah. Now, Governor, do you drive down from Middlebury? Do you stay over? <laughs> do you stay over near there? Well, I, there, there's no hotel in Plymouth, not <laughs> right. So, so uh, Woodstock. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm going to stay in Woodstock. Uh, it, uh, She's only what 15, 20 minutes away. Twenty two, according to uh, MapQuest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I was thinking, oh, I've uh, on that road before. So you're but, stay in Woodstock, but, and then you you reenact the ceremony well, at two thirty in the afternoon. Well, we've got a whole uh, several days worth of activities that uh, our listeners may be interested in. Uh, first of all, the the state historic site is open every day, ten to five. Uh, you can tour his birthplace. Uh, uh, the uh, lamplight uh, inauguration parlor, uh, the store where his dad worked, the the cheese factory that his father started just up the road, the uh, one room schoolhouse where the president attended, um, so as well as the visitor center with a more modern exhibit. Um, but but there's also um, um, uh, a uh, homestead uh, uh, reenactment ceremony at 2:47 on the third, and we're going to do it again on the fifth. So Thursday and. Saturday at 2.47 p.m. 
On the 3rd, which is Thursday, there's going to be a naturalization ceremony at the site. Now, we try to do that every year. I welcome some new Americans, so that'll be fun. At 6 p.m. on the 3rd, Thursday, we're going to uh, premiere, at least a Vermont premiere, of a new documentary on the life of President Coolidge. It's going to be at the Woodstock Town Hall Theater uh, wow. downtown. Um, and uh, we're going to have a little Q&A uh, afterward. I'll be there to talk about it. But uh, Steve Forbes, the CEO of Forbes Media, uh, arranged this. And uh, I wouldn't say he's the producer, but he's probably the fellow who <clears throat> shook the trees to <laughs> make it uh, possible to produce it. But it's it's really a, a great uh, a great. And I hope people will join us there. Yeah. And and on um, the Saturday the fifth at eleven thirty, we're going to have a memorial service for President Harding. Now, the reason we're doing that is they did that a hundred years ago in the church in Plymouth Notch too. Well, okay. So a hundred years ago, right? Because the president passed away, yeah. so he becomes president, and then the next day he uh, has a memorial service. Yeah, he got, a, and then he uh, went to. Uh, I'm not sure the exact route, but uh, down to Ludlow, up to Rutland, to catch a train to go to Washington. Uh, um, uh, but uh, yeah, he. Uh, uh, but he went back to bed after taking the oath. I think yeah. That's the important thing. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, you, you'd think he'd be a little too excited to sleep, but maybe well, not. Who knows? Well, okay, okay, so I'm president. Well, well of course, yeah. he, he was known as Silent Cal. He was. And he had the famous line right at a dinner at the White House when he was president where, I think it was, you could correct me if I'm wrong, where a reporter was sitting next to him and said, Mr. President, I, th- I bet I can get you to say more than two words. And his response was, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> He, a lot of people feel, or at least certainly some people feel, that he has been uh, undervalued as a right. president. We believe that, and, and uh, clearly his his values are relevant today. Uh, I mean, uh, the Harding Coolidge eight years um, um, were a, a time of great fiscal responsibility. Um, the the federal debt actually declined every year. Now it goes up by, what, a trillion and a half every year. It went down every year that those guys were in office. The top marginal income tax rate declined from 73% to 25% during those eight years. So the top marginal income rate was 73%. And it actually got higher in the 50s, uh, up to 90 or so. But, but yes, it was 73% right after World War One, And uh, first Harding and then Coolidge brought it down to, to 25%. And of course, if you, I went back to Plymouth Notch to see the the whole, you know, what, what do they call it? It's the Coolidge. Um, uh, what? Uh, well, the whole building there is the the. Is it called the Coolidge Library? Uh, the visitor center, uh, yeah. with a museum, and, right. yeah, a small library downstairs. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back to that two years ago, and uh, just if you haven't been there, or if you haven't been for a long time, boy, this is the time to go on the hundredth anniversary, and. Let alone with all there is to see there, the ceremony, everything else, it is also just an incredible spot. Plymouth Notch, it's so beautiful. It's spectacular. It, well, it's it's uh, often deemed the 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 best presidential um, um, historic site. Uh, it's preserved pretty much the way it was a century ago. Uh, of course, the, the uh, cemeteries right down the road were. I think seven generations of Coolidges are buried, and and unlike uh, the huge mausoleums of. Uh, Harding and Grant and McKinley, uh, just a modest stone, uh, doesn't even say he was president on it. Uh, it's really? just amazing, yeah. Including, now, I assume, sorry, inclu- including, I assume, his son, yeah. who died um, while he was president? Oh, it was terrible. In the, uh, July of uh, 1924, uh, his 16-year-old son, uh, Calvin Jr., was 
playing tennis on the White House uh, tennis courts, got a blister on his uh, heel or his foot, and um, that was pre-penicillin, like five years before wow. it was uh, years discovered. Later would have been an easy. Yeah, and uh, it was. Uh, he, uh, Coolidge uh, writes about it in his autobiography. It's just uh, uh, devastating. Obviously, it happened during the Democratic National Convention. They appropriately had a moment of silence for the president and his family. Uh, but uh, President uh, Coolidge said uh, a couple of things. You know, it costs a great deal to be president, and and uh, you know, if I weren't president, my boy would be alive today. Things like that. It weighed on him terribly. And President Coolidge yeah. didn't live that long after after the presidency, did he? No, four years. Uh, uh, <laughs> sometimes I think it's good he didn't uh, live long enough to see FDR uh, bust the budget and <laughs> spend all that money. Uh, but no, he died about four years later. And what what uh, I I've seen one photo of him. Uh, with a cigar, but he smoked a lot of them, and uh, he dropped of a, dead of a heart attack at the age of sixty, uh, four years after leaving the presidency. Uh, so yeah, that probably didn't help. I am. I do want to go back to um, his father had a, a cheese factory there. Yes. Um, Still there? He, is it? Uh, I will now. Maybe I would come down and make cheese. I don't know if that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, uh, we have a great entrepreneur, a fellow named Jesse Werner, who runs the factory now and does a great job. So it, it's up and running? Oh, and, yes. Oh, yeah. You can buy cheese there. You And also uh, take a tour of the old uh, cheese-making equipment that's on the second floor of the factory. Yes. Okay, now now i got to go. Yeah. It, it really is. Again, if, you haven't, if you've never been or if you haven't been for a long time, as I hadn't been since I was like a teenager, man, it is a... Just an incredible spot, and this is the time to go. You, you, uh, what do you do? You have any ideas? Are going to be big crowds there? The, I assume the media is going to be there. Well, I hope so. Um, um, you know, we don't have as many media as we used to in the old <laughs> days, but um, we certainly hope to to have a, a crowd. We're going to have a, a hundred high school kids there uh, because we uh, the foundation runs a scholarship program. Um, and we're building up an endowment. Uh, we give out five scholarships, uh, full scholarships every year now. But the top 100 kids, the semifinalists, uh, we invited up for uh, a long, well, I was going to say weekend, but <laughs> midweek uh, uh, visit to the Notch so they could uh, learn about President Coolidge. And um, so they'll be there, and uh, they'll be there at 2.47 in the morning. So we'll have a crowd. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> they will be, be there in the morning. You betcha. You betcha. I still may yet travel down in the afternoon. I I, well, I don't think I can't. I, I've got to do the show. We, oh, you do, but you yeah. do you do remote? We do. <laughs> That's a long we, way ta- off. we talked about it. It's <laughs> hey, it's two forty-seven in the morning. I yeah, that'd be I'm fine with but, that. But you asked earlier, Kurt, about Coolidge's values, and and we talked about fiscal responsibility. He was a uh, uh, he create uh, Harding actually created the Budget Bureau, which is now the uh, Bureau of Budget and Management or Office of Budget and Management. Uh, but more than that. Uh, Coolidge abhorred negative campaigning. Uh, he said, I always thought it more useful to explain why I ought to be hired than the other fellow ought not to be. Uh, and uh, he refused to criticize his opponents. He reached across the aisle. The, the split in the Congress was fairly even during his tenure, but he would invite uh, congressional leaders uh, from the other party to come over and, and ply them with griddle cakes and Vermont maple syrup. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sweeten it up a little bit. Well, you know, yeah. you get further with honey than you do with vinegar. You betcha. Um, <laughs> will you be at the big presidential debate at the end of, toward the end of August? In Milwaukee? Uh, uh, I don't think that's on my schedule. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I 